Rex Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. Today our guest is Roland Watson. And the theme of today's program, we're exploring the pratfalls of hoaxing lake monster evidence. Recent evidence, uh, incident of this is the photoshopped the Nancy picture by Steve Chalice. Hello, Roland. Hello. Hello, Robert. Okay. Well, I want to apologize to the audience because if you hear, if you hear what sounds like a wind tunnel behind me, it's because I'm sitting here in Florida. In this horrible heat and humidity, I've got a fan and an air conditioner going at the same time, so there's not a whole lot I can do about it. If I turned them off, I would my brain would stop functioning. So well, it's, 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 it's 18 <laughs> degrees centigrade, yeah. Yeah. Well, lucky you. You're in Scotland. Yeah. So the whole business with Steve Chalice began on June the 12th. He posted a picture on the anomalous universe. Facebook page saying that he thought he might have got a photograph of the Loch Ness monster or a large fish in Loch Ness. And I brought this to your attention. So I'll let you take it from here. We'll just tell the story the way it happened. Okay, Scott. Well, I got I got a notification from you uh, over the internet that this picture had appeared on Anomalous Universe, which is a face group group run by Steve Patrick Carrington, our mutual friend, and I had a look at it and I thought, well, I have some problems with this photograph, as had other people who were commenting on it. We had various comments like Photoshop, somebody thought it was a seal, somebody thought it was this or that. <clears throat> so I thought, well, we've got the guy online, Steve Chalice. He's got a Facebook profile. So I did a bit of digging around first before I touched base with him. That I did want to speak to him about uh, the background to this photograph. So I looked around, I had maybe his Facebook profile. These days you want to check out these guys. And it's not like the old days you'd need a private detective. You just Everything's online. So Facebook, LinkedIn, and I found out that he was a 3D graphical artist who does basically composite pictures based on CGI. <clears throat> so I started chatting and I said, because uh, I, I wanted to see this through. I mean, I had my doubts about him, as had others, but I wanted to get some kind of profile going here. Because uh, if this guy was a hoaxer, I wanted to learn what goes through these people's minds, you know? So. I chatted to him, I said, well, can you give me the original image, the image that was on the SD card or the camera? So he sends me a, a JPEG a few days later, and it's only a megabyte size, and I thought, well, this cannot be the original image, because the original camera picture files are 10, 15 megabytes in size, and this guy had a, let's see, the serious camera. So anyway, what I had, I looked at the EXIF data, which is the metadata that accompanies a digital picture such as this. And on this EXFI metadata, you'll get lots of information about the image, such as the camera it was taken with, 
and we have a date, and we have camera information such as aperture, focal length, shutter speed. We also have uh, software details like who opened this file, has it gone through any transformation. So what I found out was uh, that the picture had gone through Photoshop, Adobe Photoshop, opened, saved, and what they call derived, which is basically going through a transformation. So I'm putting questions to him. I was getting obviously less and less serious about this picture. I said, well, look, Steve, it just says you've gone through Photoshop. How do you explain that if it's straight off an SD card? He said, well, it's not off the SD card. It's just he tried to explain away, saying, well, I, I open all my camera images using Photoshop. I said, well, OK, yeah, but can you give me the original image? So off he goes again, and a day or two later, it comes back with this TIFF file, which is 10 megabytes in size. So I thought, well, this looks better. But then I had to look at the spec of his camera, which was a, a Sigma camera. <clears throat> and it doesn't save the camera image files in TIFF format. It saves them in a raw camera format, file format. And when I looked at the the, the new EXFI data for this, it said that they had gone through Adobe Shop, Photoshop, and the, a JPEG had been saved as a TIFF file. So this guy, I mean, I'd almost given up on this guy, you know. I said, well, look, this says you've saved this as a TIFF file. And it comes up with all kinds of excuses. And when I actually zoomed into the, the TIFF file image, I was, if this was a real genuine image, I would expect the TIFF file to have more granularity, better resolution, more detail. But when you zoomed in and compared to the JPEG file, it was just basically the same quality of image. In other words, it's what we call just upscaled. It had been padded out with duplicate pixels, but no, there was no, no new information in the picture. So this, I just basically said, well, you ain't got an SD card image. But by this time, by this time, during this discourse, I remember I'm trying to get into the mindset of these people. Because isn't often you get to speak to hoaxers. So meantime, I put this image up on my blog, uh, as I do for all, uh, all other kinds of photographs, allegedly in this year. I put it up, we discuss it, and people chip in their comments. So meantime, the Scottish Daily Record newspaper said, we'd like to publish this photograph. Can you put us in contact with Steve Chalice? Well, I went, well, uh, okay, but this this looks like a hoax picture. But I can't, I can't be this guy's gatekeeper. You know, so, yeah, you can speak to him, but you you need to realise this, that, and the other thing, you know? So they ran, they ran the article a couple of days later, and it went, right, it went viral. An image of that visual quality uh, is is going to get some attention. So so some people will say, well, you shouldn't allow it to be published. But I'd say to them, it's not my it's not my call on what and what does not get published by another third party. Because they want to speak to this guy, I'm not going to stop them. You know, they can talk to him and figure it out themselves. But I made sure that. I get my opinion put in, saying, you know, with doubts about this, he the idea, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so what actually happened was, uh, as I said, it got as far as you know, people are talking about it, and news channels, and New York Post, and all this sort of thing. And uh, but 
what I did not anticipate was that people got on the case. Now, what I'm trying to say is uh, people were saying this is Photoshop, okay? I, mean, I think you said that yourself, Scott. So, yeah. but what was going through my back of my mind was, well, okay, how do we prove that? You know, the way to prove it, instead of just say it, if you just say it's Photoshop, well, that's what we call an opinion. But, yeah. we want, um, but what we want is some objective facts to evidence. disprove this. Yeah? Yeah, forensic photographic evidence to prove that it was Photoshop. That's one avenue, Scott. So what, well, actually what happened first was, this thing went viral, you know, the web, the web, the web traffic on my, web, my website spiked 15-fold. And people began to start researching this picture. And eventually I was getting emails from a lot all around the world saying, we think it's this, we think it's that. But we finally hit the jackpot when a, a young chap called Jiraiah Houghton emailed me and said, I found a picture this is based on. And what it was was a picture of a, a, an angler holding a giant catfish. And if you look carefully, in the back of the catfish, the, the spots on the back of the catfish line up perfectly with this image. Yeah. Case, case closed. Smoking gun. Yeah, yep, he gets a hat tip. Uh, others have suggested other things like uh, part of the elephant trunk, you know, all the other things, but he actually found the image. Yeah. So I got, I got back to Steve Chalice and I said, what do you think of this? He never replied. So uh, that conversation is over. And we've conclusively proven, not opinions, or, yeah. but we found the actual image. Thanks to this image going viral, uh, we got a kind of group session working on this and we found the image based on it. Now, some people say, well, you shouldn't allow these images out in the first place. You know, this, this does this does harm to the reputation of the monster hunt and so on. So, I mean, it wasn't my intention that it goes viral. I just blog the photographs that come along. Yeah, people investigate. It was yeah, investigate. Yeah, we investigate. Yeah. Yeah. We investigate. I, yeah, carry on. Well, the first, the first day that I saw it, you know, if you look at the original uncropped image, it looks pretty impressive. But then you blow it up and crop that center part with a hump and look at it closely, yeah. you can see blurs around the edges. That's the first thing that got me to think about Photoshop is when I cropped it. And I looked at it and I thought, well, something doesn't look right around the wake and around the edges. You know, I thought, well, that's something don't look right, you know. A couple more things to see here. Uh, Photoshop is correct. People's intuition was correct here. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I ran this photo past some photo forensic people, and I was getting comments from uh, graphic designers on on the comment section saying we think this and that. But a guy, a guy ran it past a photo forensic guy. He ran it through what we call a JPEG error level analysis program. He said, well, yeah, this is a fake because you can see this kind of discolorations on, on, the, on the error level output image. I'll post this to my blog eventually, but uh, what, I've, what I got was an objective assessment of this photograph based on computer software. Yes. 
because people, people, uh, people will give their opinions. Some people said it's this, that, and the other thing. Any time a, a picture of Nessie comes out, a alleged picture of Nessie comes out, uh, people, I've had pictures last year, turned out to be logs, but people are still seeing Photoshop, you know? But it wasn't Photoshop, it was a log uh, of a, a, a log in Orchid Bay. So we, I'm, I'm trying to go one level beyond uh, knee-jerk, intuitive reactions. You know, people can talk about, yeah, I can see a bit of blood in here, I can see a bit of uh, pixelation here, but you know, we need some, something more objective than that. And there's the two objective answers where one, we got the original picture, thanks to other people researching this image, and two, we had some guy running computer software on this image doing this uh, ELA analysis, saying, yeah, we can see clues in the output image saying that this has been tampered. But of course, there's, some, there's another aspect uh, which no one even talks about. And the, the, main, the bottom line is, when I saw this picture, I thought, Nessie's not purple, and Nessie does not have spots on its back. Okay? Now, you look at the picture, it's purple. I mean, purple spotted monsters appear in kids' books, okay? Yeah. So, uh, so I, there's two ways of looking at this, Photoshop, logs, okay. But uh, as, a, as a person who believes in Loch Ness Monster, in the back of my mind is always the corpus of the eyewitness database, okay? Yeah. If, if someone says, I saw Nessie and it had uh, horns going down its back, or it had five horns sticking in its head. I'll look at the, the database. I'll see if there's any precedent for that. And I went to testimony. If there's not, then the guy's lying, okay? So in the scene with this purple, how many how many eyewitnesses have said that Nessie is purple? I, I'm pretty confident to say that no one has described Nessie as being purple. Oh, it's usually grey. Yeah, it's usually grey, blackish. You may get the odd brown. Some say green, as in uh, the Cruikshank one uh, sighting. But purple, there's no precedent for that. And after 80 years of testimonies, you, you, if this was a common colour, you'd expect it. And I'm, I'm even allowing for uh, humps that are seen in the shade and silhouette are darkened, you know? Yeah. So my, my thought was, no one's described a purple messy. The spot, oh. the, the spot, the, the speck, the, the speckled back. No one's described that either. So this, this, this rang alarm bells for me. Most of the photographic evidence over the last few years has been pretty pathetic. I mean, you've mostly got blobs. So, so if that picture had not been photoshopped, it looked very impressive. So, because of the fact that it looks so impressive superficially, it was important to establish whether it was fake or not. Because if it hadn't have been fake, it was potentially a very important picture. Yeah, yeah. If this guy had, if this guy had delivered to me the original SD raw image, and we ran it through the forensic software. And none of those had flagged up anything. If the EXIF data had been totally clean, 
and the software and the error, error level in us had been clean, then we could have taken it seriously. Yeah. And we, we desperately want really good evidence like that, if it's for real. Yeah, well, I mean... So that's part of, part of the reason why we, we go to the trouble of thoroughly investigating things that may be kind of iffy, is there's always the chance that it might not be a hoax. But we don't know that until we study it and look at it in depth. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you've got people making snap judgments and dismissing a photograph in five seconds. And most of the time, they're going to be right. But my fear is, if we get another photograph like this, people are just, and it's genuine, people are just going to say Photoshop again, aren't they? How'd you get around that? Who's the boat captain that faked the home picture? I can't think of his name. George Edwards. George Edwards, yes. Yeah. So, you know, every time somebody does something like this, you know, it's it, well, the whole thing, you know? Well, he had, he, uh, I mean, that, that fooled a few people, it seems. But eventually, uh, uh, Steve Felsen got a tip off that, that this was just a fiberglass prop. Yeah. And, and it was in someone's garage or someone's shed. So it's, it's, sometimes we can be taken along with something or we give it a bit too much slack. But you know, every photograph these days, as I've said before, I mean, it needs what we call a probation period. Okay. Yes. We don't. We don't immediately say yes or no. We just sit on it, see what and, happens. And you know, people like me and you, we have to walk that line, and we're always subject to ridicule to people that have completely closed minds on the subject. Every yeah. time something like yeah. this happens, they say, "See." We told you so, you know? If you know their problem, they, they'll never say yes to a picture. They, they just, they say no to everything because that's a safe option, keeps their reputation intact, that's it. That's, that's, the, that's the, the, the thing that people like me and you have to live with, is we have to live with being ridiculed by people who have a closed mind on this subject. And you know, you know, that's fine. They look at what we do and they say, oh, what you're doing is not science. Well, maybe it's not science yet, but it could potentially be if we really find something and we're not gonna find something if we stop looking for it, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, people dismiss everything and not adding any knowledge, in my opinion. They're just skeptics. Yeah. Need your skeptics. Well, you know, I, I think it's healthy to look at it from all perspectives. Just because you can step outside of your your box and look at it from, from a different perspective doesn't mean you have to embrace that other perspective. But yeah, well, yeah. It's yeah. good to step outside and look at it from a different point of view, just to be able to turn it around and look at it from all different angles, you know? Yeah, man, no, no one, huh? no one, very small minority gave it any credence, so no one was touting it. But uh, I, I'm prepared to talk to people. I actually wanted this guy to confess. 
you know. I wanted him to show me the picture he used. Yeah. But they actually went on Australian TV and gave them an account of it as if, if as if it actually happened. Yeah. So this this guy just got worse. He didn't get better. So it seems that some we're talking about psychology here now because this, this is an aspect of this that interests me. The, the psychology mindset of the hoaxer. Some some of them just go quiet. Like, for example, Robert Wilson, the surgeon's photo, wouldn't give interviews, very coy. But some people seem to revel in it, you know? Well, so you know, actually, I um, I have an open mind on the surgeon's photo. I think that maybe yeah, yeah. the hoax claim was just a story made up by the weather wells. Yeah. We'll come to that later, yeah. But... Uh, the point is, Steve Chalice, he was, he's, maybe he's getting something out of this, you know, some kudos, professional kudos from his mates, you know, but maybe he's doing it for a bet, you know. But the thing is, he, and this, this interests me as well, uh, he said to the this Australian television company, well, I think it's a catfish. And he was right. It was a catfish. It was well, a photo. Yes. It was a Photoshop catfish. Yeah, I think now, I think the environmental DNA thing has ruled out the catfish theory. Yeah, but, like yeah, we're not talking about is there a catfish not this. This guy Steve Chalice was saying, I think this is a catfish. What he's really saying was, yes, this is a catfish. I thought I took a picture of a catfish and photoshopped it into Loch Ness. Yeah. So well, you see. He was giving us a clue. There's a no doubt that the original image is Loch Ness. It was filmed somewhere close to Urquhart Castle. Yeah. Background but, anyway. But he stuck a he he cut and pasted a catfish onto it. So, so that's telling me that sometimes uh, hoaxers might give uh, uh, the clues to their guilt. You know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Some he said it's a catfish, and he was right. <laughs> some people so, say any publicity is good publicity. So if he's looking for attention, he found it. Well, it seems like he got what he wanted. But it is attention. So. I think uh, it, it's made me think that maybe I should go back to some previous eyewitness testimonies and see if they have a little subtle hint that they're actually faking it. So, uh, in the meantime, this this uh, this photograph kind of unintentionally made history because it's the first ever mainstream media picture purported to be a Nessie, which is Photoshop. Okay, if you if you look through all the other images throughout the years and all these pictures that see this is Nessie, most of the time it's a log or uh, something else. But none of them have been proven to be Photoshop, you know? Yeah, well, this one definitely yeah. sure is. Um, so I think this is the first of our mainstream media Nessie Photoshop picture. Yeah. Don't know, if, don't know if anyone should be proud of that, but it's, it's a historic first. You want to talk about Steve Belton coming out with a revelation about Steve Chalice contacting him about five days before he posted the pictures. Yeah, that was, uh, I don't know, it was, 
I mean, the, 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 we posted, we posted the, the picture ended up on your Facebook group, ZPS. Yeah. And it was there, it was there, people were discussing it for a week. Then a week later, Steve turns up and says, oh, by the way, I've got these emails of this guy proving he's a faker. I thought, well, yeah, it's great. Why didn't you tell us about it? <laughs> yeah, just, we were working in the dark. We didn't know about this, you know, so. But, I mean, I tell you the truth, I mean, we didn't need that information. It was, I mean, everyone had I looked at the EXIIF. We had other people chipping in with opinions. But no, nobody was seeing it was a the real thing anyway. Yeah. Well, so Steve missed his chance. But it's good to cooperate, isn't it? Yeah, you know. Um, this also reminds me of the whole Ricky Phillips fiasco. If you want to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was uh, that was about over a year ago. Was it a year ago? I've lost track now. So Ricky Phillips. I believe the original picture was posted December of 2018. That's it. Over a year. Didn't get didn't get exposed all the way until April of 2019. So this drug out a little bit longer than this. Yeah, so that 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 worked in reverse. That that picture first appeared in the, the mainstream media of this object that looks like a head and neck. So you had something that looked like a short neck and a kind of conical head. So I thought this image looks interesting. So I actually managed to get in contact with Ricky Phillips and have a discussion with him. Yeah, turns out he was a part of a, a Loch Ness tour bus uh, operation. He's one of the tour guides. So uh, people were suspicious about that because it would seem to be getting publicity for his uh, company. He's also said he was a military historian uh, on the Falkland Islands uh, Battle of 1982. So people were coming in and saying, well, this guy doesn't, is not a military historian. He doesn't have any real qualifications. He did write a book on it. So uh, so people, accusations were flying, and this guy, Ricky Phillips, allowed him allowed him a platform to defend this picture and allowed people to ask him questions. This is what I like to do. I like to get eyewitnesses involved. Yeah. I've, I've, I've done that in the past before. Well, if, yeah. somebody, if somebody's telling the truth and has nothing to hide, they shouldn't have a problem with that, you know? Yeah, so in my, in my opinion, what I didn't, I didn't come out outright and say it was Nessie. I did say I thought he'd seen something he couldn't explain. So I was wrong on that point. It was something he could explain. It was actually, as it turned out later, but the problem was uh, we were asking him for the full-blown image. All we had was this little zoom in. So I said, well, can you send us the, the uncropped picture? Because we, we, we really need to see that. He said, oh, I'm sorry, it was at my mate, Mike. My phone ran out of memory and I can't I haven't seen the image. So that, that smelled a bit. A bit like Steve Chalice Steve Chalice saying he didn't have the original SD card in it. So I went, yeah, okay. Yeah. So we just let it lie. And the story petered away actually until some weeks later one of his pals said, This guy's taking you for a ride and here's why. And it, it turns out that Ricky Phillips on his closed 
closed Facebook group page uh, had this picture of this so-called head and neck sticking out at the base of a pillar of a ruined bridge. Yeah. And in that picture, he confessed, you know, this is, this doesn't this branch look like Nessie? No. And this I don't, bridge is in Port Augustus, right? Yeah, this is an old bridge. It's now ruined. It's just now the pillars are standing on the River Oich. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, you, you can see them from, you can see them from the, 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 the town. But this, this branch, which is probably gone now, uh, was my just... Initial, my initial impressions of the Ricky Phillips picture is that if it wasn't a Nessie, the two most likely answers was either a log or a bird's head. Yeah, it could have been a bird's head. Uh, but once again, we had someone coming in saying, look, this is the way it is. Yeah. So... So once again, well, I I, I reran, I mean, I I basically exposed exposed it on behalf of others. He, I got the original information from this anonymous third party, so I said, okay, the case closed. So I, I ran another blog with this picture. So I I with the help of another, just like just like uh, Jeremiah who found the catfish catfish picture. Yeah, this other guy came in and we found the original image. Yeah. Once again, I emailed Ricky Phillips for a comment. And like Steve Chalice, I never got a reply. So it seems that these guys don't like confessing, you know? Of course not. Well, they don't have to now. They're busted. Yeah, well. And embarrassing to them. We've confessed for them, I suppose. Yeah. Once again, we found the indisputable proof uh, but the other lesson was Steve Chalice couldn't provide the original file. This guy couldn't f provide the original file. Well, he actually could, but he lied again. So, Things another like bust. The closer you get them backed into a corner, the less they, they can cooperate with you, which is, is a red flag right there, you know? I mean, as we, as we look back on the history of fakers, we're, we're going to find that there's very little in the way of confession, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, going back to the original classic hoax, the yeah. hippo footprints that Weatherell found, the stupidity of that is one of the reasons that I have a hard time believing that they, the same people, could pull something off as sophisticated as a surgeon's phone. Right. I've always well, got a problem with that, you know? Well, Weatherall, Marmaduke Weatherall, uh, went up to Loch Ness uh, in the winter of 33. Uh, at the behest, he's being paid by the London Daily Mail newspaper to investigate this, this new phenomenon that was, had appeared at Loch Ness. So by the time, by the time he got to Loch Ness, uh, must have been November, December. Uh, the, the Nessie story was only about six months old. So he's a big game hunter. He's a reputation as a guy who can track down big animals. So, and he's a bit of a charismatic character that people can relate to. 
So off he goes with his team, and within days, within days, he's he, it's announced in the Daily Mail that he has found tracks in the gravel, tracks in the gravel, on a, a lonely beach between Foyers and Fort Augustus. This is the kind of beach you can only really get a boat to. As it turns out, it's the kind of beach you can quietly do your hoax and work without anyone seeing you. So uh, he uh, publishes the Daily Mail publishes pictures saying monster footprints found, or spears as they called them, and Marmaduke Weatherall uh, confidently proclaimed that this was a four four toed amphibious creature. Four toes because the track showed four toes and amphibious because it was on land. So this, this created a sensation and the two plaster casts and the set of the plaster casts to the Natural History Museum in London for examination and around late December, actually it was there, it's just at the turn of the year, 1934, they announced that these were no more than the, the, the spores of a, a hippopotamus. So where uh, you think to yourself, how could he get away with it? What, what made him... Well, the thing was, they, they said, well, these spores must have been made by uh, someone with an umbrella with a hippo foot on it. You know, so they were blaming a local for it, not Weatherall. And Weatherall was just put down as someone who, an innocent, who'd been deceived. So, uh, so Weatherall kind of got off scot free. The one, the obvious question that had to be asked is what? Why would anyone be walking along this beach, which you can only get to by boat with a, with a, an umbrella for hoop, uh, a hippopotamus foot on it? So he went on. He investigated the Arthur Grant land sighting, happened a few days later. Uh, some people claim Arthur Grant and Weatherill will in cahoots, but I, I don't agree with that. And I think, what's up? I, I don't believe Grant was in cahoots with Weatherill. No, and the other thing is uh, the Grant sighting founded, found three, found footprints with three toes. So where uh, if weather was going to be a consistent hoax, he would have used the same hippopotamus stand. But as it turned out, we went through through to January, and eventually the Daily Mail pulled the story in. They basically fired them and said, we've had enough. Uh, and to save some face, the Daily Mail ran a story in which weather claimed that he'd actually finally saw the monster and they, they, they drew a picture of it and they concluded it was just a very large seal. When you look at the picture, it looks like something like an elephant bull seal, not an ordinary seal. Yeah. Yeah, so that, I think they just made up that story to, draw, well, to, to have some kind of final conclusion on the matter. One thing I'm curious about is why he chose to put hippo or elephant-like footprints on the beach, and, and I think one of the reasons why is that at that point in time, the plesiosaur idea had not really gotten a grip on people, and a lot of people were talking about a Diplodocus-type dinosaur. And yeah. 
sauropod dinosaurs have feet like an elephant or a hippo. So that may have been his logic in using the hippo foot ashtray or whatever he used to make those footprints with. Yeah, well, as it turned out, uh, as you see, the, the hoax was exposed as being a, an ashtray made out of a hippo footprint, a footpad, yeah. by murder. But I believe there's so many holes in the surgeon's photo hoax claim that I'm not willing to accept it. And I've looked at the recreations that um, Richard Smith did on the Nova special with a four-foot-high neck, and I find that just as convincing as the one-foot-high. So I've got an open mind on possibly on the validity of the surgeon's photo, but that's just my opinion. Well, the link is, as you see, uh, back in 1975, when uh, the underwater range photographs were all the rage and were being talked about, uh, there was a, there was a, a letter published in the, a column published in the Daily Telegraph in London, in which someone came forward claiming that another well-known photograph in the past was a fake, and that this was from the step. This was from the son or this was from Ian Weatherall, the yeah, son of Marmaduke, from the son of Marmaduke Weatherall. Yeah. So he was he was claiming that his father faked it out of revenge for the Daily Mail sacking him back yeah. in 1934. <laughs> uh, and and as, as you know, they then the case that Adrian Shine passed on this newspaper clip into Alistair Boyd, yep. who's, a, who's a monster believer. Yes. He, he yes. took up the case and he spoke to Ian Wetherill and he, he found out about the, the Hippo Astry, which I believe is now in the Loch Ness Monster Exhibition Centre at Drum and Rocket. And, but he was also directed to a, a guy called Christian Spurlin, who was a stepson of Marmaduke Wetherill. She was a stepbrother of uh, Half-brother He claimed that he he constructed the head and neck on top of a toy submarine. Yep. And uh, Marmaduke Wetherill, along with Christian Spurling, didn't go to Loch Ness, but he handed this over, having tested it in a, a pond in Twickenham, and Wetherill took it up north and photographed the object in the water. And he used the uh, as we know, uh, Robert Wilson is a frontman who took the undeveloped negatives to a chemist called Ogston in Inverness. Yeah. And, and two pictures came out of the four. And supposedly uh, a guy, a friend of Wilson's named Maurice Chambers, was involved in re-photographing and putting those pictures on the plates. So yeah, well, he goes. It's very complicated, compartmentalized conspiracy, and the yeah. only the only evidence you have to go on are the verbal testimonies of the Weatherell brothers. There's no yeah, we have, evidence yeah. to back up the story. We have two confessions: Christian Spurling and Ian Weatherell. Yeah, but, so it's really, it's really down to whether you think 
two confessions. Though that they're telling the truth, they could have made this whole story up together, and maybe nobody took the bait for years and years and years. I don't know. You know, Robert Wilson was very coy to Constance White, who wrote the 1957 Water Legend. He seemed to be obliquely telling her not to get too involved with this picture. Uh, so, allegedly, allegedly, he met with David James too and said it was true. So, I don't know. Well, he may have said that. Because uh, I was intrigued by, I'm, I'm more intrigued by the second photograph, which is uh, which shows a, a, a head apparently submerging. Yeah, that's uh, seem to imply that it's a living object, whatever it is. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you do that, how you get that picture with a model submarine attached to it. Uh, because uh, people can, people, oh. I mean, people have got the original submarine attached to a, a plastic head and they can take a picture of it floating in the water. But no one, to my knowledge, has shown how you get the second photograph reproduced. They tend to ignore the second photograph. Even Boyd and Mark do. They just kind of brush it off, and, and that's historically Boyd, yeah. part of the evidence. Boyd and Martin see just brush it off. They see it, it's different. Even the waves are different on it. And that's true, but it didn't explain how it, how it got there. And uh, yeah. I suspect, I suspect, when they asked Christian Spurling about it, he didn't. He said he knew nothing about it. You yeah, know, it's, it's, so it's a, it's a flying ointment. I mean, I still think it's a fake. You the don't. Other, the other big red flag is the fact that Ian Weatherell said he took the pictures with a 35 millimeter Leica camera. Yeah. And it's a historical fact that Wilson went to Oxton's chem chemists with a plate camera. Yeah. So the only way to get around that is to say, oh, Maurice Chambers re-photographed these pictures, but there's no real evidence to back up that claim. Yeah, I don't know how you could prove that. But uh, I always assumed that they were taken straight from the plate camera on site. And whether it was just wrong about the Leica. <laughs> but that's what he says in the uh, Mandrake article, though. Yeah. I mean, so many holes in the in the story, you know, if you wanna sit down and speculate like Dick Rayner's speculation about seeing wires attached to the submarine. That that's just you know, that's from a blurry photograph. I mean I'm not saying he's wrong, but it's pretty shaky claim, really, you know, I mean why why, why do you need wires anyway? I mean Yeah, you know be just a <coughs> Could be the waves. It could be the fact that the picture's been reprinted like five times. Or something I don't know. No, I'm on. I mean, what? You could be wrong too. You know? The picture's so bloody. The picture's so grainy that you could not. No. You can see a lot of things in it. And part I of mean, the problem is the reason. I mean, you, Tim, Dins, Tim Dinsdale said he could see a second monster in the picture. Yeah. Well, part of the problem is. Trying to decide whether it's a one foot neck or a four foot neck is that the way the picture is framed, 
you can't tell how far away it is, really, because of the the depth perception. It could be either yeah. way. You know, it's hard to tell. You need you need the original uncropped picture, which we kind of have. Yeah. Uh, you can work out the angle from possibly looking at the, the way that circular ripples are contracted into ellipses. You can work at the angle, but you can, you can never really work at the distance. Exactly. Between, between photographer and object. That's why you can't tell whether it's four foot high or one foot high. Because of the depth perception. The depth of the field. Yeah, I think, uh, oh, yeah. is it Paul, Paul LeBlond, the Cadborosaurus guy, he ran a study on this picture. Yep. He concluded it was about four foot high. Yeah. Based on analysis of the weaves. Yeah. Well, Richard Smith, using a four-foot-high model, was able to reproduce the dimensions of the picture, so it could be four feet high. So, there you go. That's evidence right there. <clears throat> well, to me, to me, I mean, two confessions is enough. Yeah, well, you know, to each his own, you know. So, this is one of the few things we disagree on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, but but it's based on evidence. I mean, we're both working from the same evidence, you know. So it's ambiguous. It really yeah, it's is. Pretty, it's pretty hard to see how you could advance this photograph any more after 80, 80 years. Yeah. It's what new information can we have? Yeah. So <clears throat> we got to talk about the king of the Loch Ness hoaxers, Mr. Frankie Eric Boy. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the name of this episode is going to be Fearless Frank and the Fakers. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Boy, you know what? If, if, if I knew where Frank Searle was buried, I'd go pee on his grave. I don't know That's what he is. High esteem I hold him in. <clears throat> yeah, well, <clears throat> it's a strange thing because... Uh, Frank Sell is, is more famous than a lot of the real monster hunters. Yeah. You know, he's become a kind of lovable rogue. Well, you know? I, I don't hold him, I don't look at him that way, but I'm sure people that consider the Loch Ness Monster joke probably do, you know. Yeah, well, it'd be better if he'd never turned up. Exactly. But, uh, he, Frank... We know, we know very little about Frank outside of Loch Ness. He is apparently a soldier, paratrooper. He's apparently uh, a greengrocer after the war yep. in London. He had a, he's got a Cockney accent, so he, it sounds to me like he's from the east of London. Uh, he, my uncle, uh, I've got, I had an uncle, Jack, who claimed he knew him from the army. So, yeah, I wonder, I don't know if he's talking about the same Frank Serrell, but he claimed they're both in the army, so he didn't tell me much more. And uh, so, well, what we know about Frank Serrell mainly comes from Frank Serrell. So uh, he says that he, was a, he used to take camping holidays up to Loch Ness in the 50s and 60s. And, he, and like Tim Dinsdale, he was originally inspired by Constant White's 1958 book, More Than a Legend. 
So he he went out camping trips every year apparently. So he was actually going to Loch Ness before the guy we knew, and uh, he even claimed he had a single hump, single hump sighting in June 1965. And June June 65 is about four years before he he set up shop at Loch Ness. So eventually, didn't he? Didn't he move there in July of 1969? Yeah. So I was. I was going to say it. He turned up in July of 69. Was it? Was it July? 69? Yeah. So he set up his tent in not where he not where he eventually ended up, but further north towards Doors. He pitched his tent, and. At that point in time, nobody really heard of him, uh, and we didn't really hear any anything from him. So he basically set set up watching the lock from dawn to dusk, presumably. So at this at this point, you know, we believe he was a genuine monster hunter. You know, I, I don't I don't believe he turned up with the intention of running a scam. So he turned up with the best of intentions, <coughs> and for <coughs> excuse me, for about three years, we hear nothing from him until about 1971-72, when this photograph turns up of uh, some humps in the water. So what we have is a, a picture that shows two very low-lying humps, for kind of fin-like object at the end. So we. Uh, we this kind of came out in about June '72, so about three years later. So people people speculate, you know, he turned up. He thought he thought it'd be only a matter of time before he got conclusive pictures. How many people have said that? And uh, nothing happened. He's getting frustrated, and he want. I think eventually his ego got in the way. He wanted fame. Maybe it's more fame than money, you know, because I, I don't think these photographs paid much money. So uh, he, cl he claimed to get his first photograph in November 71. But I, I don't think I've ever seen that picture. So, so basically, June 72, this picture turns up. Uh, I think it's in a daily, daily record or something like that, Scottish newspaper. And Frank becomes famous. And what happens after that is uh, for the next, I would say, next four years, the next four years, every six, every, about every six months on average, a new photograph turns up. So they're not exactly a big income generator, are they? It's the only, it's the only turn up two, two every year. I think we've basically got about eight pictures that Frank claimed showed a Loch Ness monster. Uh, we've got four, four show uh, a long neck. The other four or five just show humps, two, one or two humps in the water. And uh, eventually he got exposed because I think he went a bit too far. Uh, we have the famous... The Brontosaurus picture was, was the... Was the bron far. The Brontosaurus postcard. Yes. So what what happened was uh, there was a big expose 
Actually, I was a kid at the time, and I remember getting this newspaper, the Scottish Sunday Mail. And back in 1976, they ran this centerfold, two-page expose. It showed the, the postcard and this latest picture from Frank Sell, which had been taken uh, a few months before. And it shows the hump and the long neck. And it's a perfect fit for the, for the postcard. Yep. You know, this is like a Steve Chalice cat, catfish picture. Yeah. The, the dot, the dots in the back line up perfectly. Yep. Smoking gun. It was a smoking gun. Uh, I was a, an Arthur Dixon postcard, and uh, clearly there's plenty of people lining up to expose Frank Searle because uh, across the water you had the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, which actually was folding up around the time Frank took his first picture. This makes me wonder whether he he was waiting till they were out of the way before he could safely take pictures without too much uh, critical analysis. So uh, the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau folds up in 72 and around the exact same time Frank Sell's photographs start appearing. Because the thing is, you still had a lot of uh, Loch Ness Investigation Bureau people and Loch Ness and Mora project people at Adrian Shine and so on still around the loch. Well, so, Henry Bauer exposed some of his stuff too. Henry yes. Bauer took pictures of, of the same picture of the Nessie in the water with its mouth open. Yeah. Like it's eating fish and you see the humps on the back changing shape. But yes. the mouth and the head doesn't move. Yeah, there was it. Somebody claimed a friend a model which might line up with that picture. Yeah. There's another picture of a what looks like a head and neck sticking out the water, which uh, was exposed as actually a, a post and it's sticking out the water, which had a kind of salt put on top of it. I uh, I I took that picture. It's part of the slideshow that's going to be with this episode. Yeah. So what what had happened there was uh, some people, some ex-members of the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau and others. Uh, formed a committee to look at the old, to re-evaluate the old classic pictures. And Frank Serrell came under the microscope. Yeah. I don't I don't agree with all their conclusions, but I think they're right on this one. Because yeah, they went, they found, they found the exact spot. You can see the hill, the hill contours in the background. They're exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, and this post, picture this post, and Frank Serrell had obviously dressed it up as a long neck monster taking a picture. So, the relationships between Frank Cerro on the south side of the loch and all these other monster hunters in the north was getting a bit fractured, you see. So, the Frank Cerro's story is not just about the fake pictures. I mean, the fake, the fake pictures ran from about 1972 to 1976. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any others beyond that, maybe the 77. But once we get into the late 70s, I think he stops taking pictures because basically no one wants them. He's been exposed. And, it's, uh, it's incredible. He even got a UFO picture. Yeah, but that's, that was a sight. That was an act of desperation, I think. 
and the, the, the Daily Record editor said, well, Frank, this is above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah. So, Frank Serrell was being exposed by Adrian Shine and others across the water. Yeah. Uh, and this, things were beginning to get a bit fractious. Yep. So eventually, uh, Frank Serrell goes on the attack. In fact, I think one catalyst for it was Erie. So Frank Sell wrote several books. Yep. Uh, he, wrote, he wrote one in 76, I think, called Nessie's Seven Years in Search of the Monster. That, that was published around the time of this Brontosaurus expose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wrote, he wrote a couple of, he co-wrote a couple of tourist booklets uh, as well for lo- local consumption. So, uh, but then eventually, uh, Frank Sell wrote another book called uh, Loch Ness Investigation, What Really Happened. But it was never published. Yeah. And his first it, book was withdrawn because of a threatened lawsuit by the school teacher that had been friends with Frank Searle and found out he had plagiarized some of his writing. Yeah, the first book. The first book. Yeah, I think it was uh, Alan Jones, his name, the teacher. He, oh, there you go. Yeah, he, no, not Alan Jones. It was, uh, it was a Jones anyway. And there. Uh, he he had gone up to Loch Ness with some cool school kids from his school, and uh, they'd done a project on Loch Ness, and they went back to the school in England. It was Leamington Spa, and they they wrote up a, a nice little booklet, which I actually have, uh, detailing their research and all that. And Jones is right; there's a large portion of that sections of that book. I think it was to dealing with what the identity of the monster actually was in Frank Sale's book, word for word. Yeah, well, he threatened the publishers with a lawsuit, was my understanding, and they withdrew the book. Well, what they did was, yeah, they, did, they didn't do a rerun. They, yeah. what, what was published was published, but they didn't, they didn't plan on doing any more uh, reruns or revisions. Yeah, so, I have a paperback of the first book. Yeah, so do I. It's an interesting read. Uh, this is the second book that's more interesting, the one that wasn't published. So, uh, but before that, before before that book came out, which is about 81, 82, uh, Frank Sell published uh, newsletters. Yep. So the, the newsletters are interesting because well, the first thing is the newsletters began to be published around 1977, yeah, but 78. Those are available online, right? Yeah, you can get them on my blog. So I've scanned them in. The first first one, but 77, uh, basically, it's it's basically his... uh, Monster Hunting Diary. So Frank, Frank Serrell, what, what actually, what, what do we make of these newsletters? I mean, it gives you the news. It tells you what he's up to. It's like an operations newsletter. Uh, but he also says he gets visitors coming to him and telling them their sightings. 
So, we're not entirely sure what to make of these newsletters because they'll tell us that Mr. So-and-so came up with his wife and they'll give their names and possibly where they're from and they'll tell, Frank will print up how they saw a long neck or two humps. Uh, but, you know, can we take these things seriously? I mean, see, he ran, he ran this newsletter for about six years. So in the meantime, so we have this kind of documentation of what's going on. Now, unfortunately, these newsletters are not just a chronology of alleged sightings of monsters uh, and what Frank was up to, but they're also increasingly uh, diatribes against other monster hunters. So if you read these newsletters, you get a kind of history of the increasing tension between Frank Cerro, uh, ex Loch Ness investigation guys, He's constantly running down Tim Dinsdale. He's running down the, the, the new exhibition centre in front of the docket, which is run by Tony Harmsworth. He's running down Adrian Shine. He's basically telling us that these guys are just in it for the money. It's a bit ironic. Uh, he's basically saying that the whole operations on the other side of the lock are just a scam. That is not right. I don't, I don't believe. I mean, no, no. You know, the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau had finished by 72 anyway. Yeah. So, no point in talking about them. And then finally it comes down to the, the hurling of the petrol bomb. Yeah, well, eventually, uh, these these newsletters and all the, all the, all the libel and slander uh, gets published in this book or, or written up in this Loch Ness Investigation, you know. And they, he, claim, he claims that Tim Dinsdale faked his hump picture. He claims that Tim Dinsdale went with another mysterious second person in 1960. He claims that Tim Dinsdale had a punch up with this guy and this guy collapsed and Tim Dinsdale had the help of some local fishermen to take this guy back to England. Uh, and what do you make of these stories? So, uh, and he, he claims this, that. He really did not like Tim Dinsdale, because I think Tim Dinsdale was briefing against him and exposing him for what he was, you know? Yeah. So he... he Nick Whistle had a lot of bad things to say about him, too. Yeah, well, the, the book that published, Adrian Shine advised the publishers not to go ahead with this book, because they may get a visit from the lawyers, yeah? Yeah. Shine, uh, not Shine, uh, Frank Serrell claimed it was Tim Dinsdale that pulled and forced the guys to pull the book. Mm. So I think they're probably both right. I think Tim Dinsdale, because the, the, the book is very libelous against Tim as well. Yeah. So I think Tim yeah. Dinsdale, Adrian Shine and others uh, joined forces to get this, this book pulled. He had bad things to say about Robert Rhines too. Yeah, he didn't have anything good to say about anyone, except himself, you know? So, uh, so eventually, I mean, I, I, I found out about this book. Uh, when I was in, when I, I used to go up to Loch Ness in the early 80s on my bike, and I actually met Frank Serrell. Oh, really? So, yeah. I didn't so know that. I, uh, I went, so I, I was, I was camping, you know, I just brought my tent on the back of my, on my bike. And they had a camp along the shoreline, sleeping in a tent. 
Uh, and uh, I said, well, I'm going to look at Frank Cyril. So uh, I cycled down to Foyers. By then, by then he was in Foyers. So Foyers is two villages, upper and lower. So you go down this winding road and you turn right at the bottom into the site which used to be the aluminium works. So you get some old buildings there which have driven out storage. You keep going along along this little forest path which leads to the to the Foyer power station. So just before you come to the gates of the power station, which is still running to this day, uh, I saw this little caravan uh, part pitched by the pier and it had Frank Cell investigation uh, on it. So I went in and I took a few photographs. It was basically a display of newspaper clippings and articles that, which basically were uh, his work. I mean, it wasn't a great exhibition. It was just basically a lot of uh, panels with pictures, postcards and newspaper clippings uh, stuck on. So I had a look at it. So this is interesting. I took a picture, which I put my blog in. It's the only photograph in existence of the inside of his, his exhibition. So I came out, and there was Frank coming towards me. So uh, with hindsight, well, at the time, I was perfectly innocent. I went, how are you doing, Frank? You know, how's the hunt and all that. I, I don't actually remember much now about what we said. Uh, but it looked, it looked pretty pensive. Now this, this is in 1983. 1983. So what actually happened was he was he was on the verge of leaving the lock. Uh, I think he was suspicious of me because he. I later found out he was claiming that the Loch Ness investigation was sending people out to check out what he's up to. Uh, I had nothing to do with Loch Ness investigation. I was just a lone hunter. So at that point in time, his book had been pulled. And around that time, we had, as you said, the uh, Adrian Shine Conman uh, letters being daubed on the side of Arctic Castle and paint. It's a, a, ter a terrible act of vandalism, you know? And uh, Frank, Frank Sell, obviously, people on the other side told, told, told the police about this. And then there was a petrol bomb attack. You know, this Don Reid, which a, a man, an unidentified man in a rowing boat, is through a Molotov cocktail at one of the the pontoon boats of the Loch Ness and Mora, the Loch Ness Mora project run by Adrian Shine. So uh, they called the police. The police went over to Frank Sell's tent and he claimed that he, he was painting and the paint was still not dry and that proved that he wasn't, was never there. But yeah, I is just making up that story. So eventually I think he claimed that some people came over and beat him up and told him to leave the lock. Yeah. Now whether, how much truth was in that story, I don't know. But if, if you get someone daubing Castle Arcade with red paint and trying to destroy a pontoon, I wouldn't be surprised if some people took the law into their own hands. I'm yeah. not implying I'm not implying Adrian or anyone had anything to do with this, but I think it's possible some people had enough of them. So in his last newsletter, which is December nineteen eighty three, 
so that was a few months after I saw him. Uh, he basically says, I'm finishing now. Uh, I've, I've done I've done my bit here. I'm now going off treasure hunting. Yep. So a lot of a lot of his last newsletter is all about he's going to the west of Scotland, he's got his metal detector, he's got maps, he's going to look for a Viking burial sites and bloody treasure. And surprise, surprise, he's, uh, he's advertising for Gil Friday to come along with him. As we know, Frank Frank couldn't do without his Gil Fridays. Yep. So that's his news, last newsletter. He then disappears, true to his word, he disappears forever from Loch Ness. I had no idea if he ever went back. I have no idea if he ever actually saw the monster. I have no idea if any photographs he took show anything. He claimed he spent 40,000 hours watching the loch. 40,000 hours. Now, to tell, tell the truth, if that, if that number is true, he must have seen something. Right? 40,000 hours. Ted Holliday claimed you need to watch a loch for at least 400 hours to see something. Yeah. Sarah's claiming somewhere the average time for a Loch Ness monster sighting is once every three weeks. Yeah. So, if there is any truth to what Frank Sarah says, we'll never know because we can't trust him. So, the, 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 the prologue to this, the epilogue rather, the epilogue is uh, he moved to Fleetwood in Lancashire. He'd given up treasure hunting. He never became rich. He just settled down in some modest uh, flat, tending his garden, and uh, eventually a guy called Andrew Tullis tried to find him for a documentary, the man who captured Nessie. It's very sad to say that he found him, but he just died a few weeks before. Yep. So it's as if fate, fate has said, you're not going to get a chance to defend yourself because you're indefensible. And the final epilogue to this story is uh, Paul Harrison. Yep. And Paul Harrison wrote the Encyclopedia of the Loch Ness Monster. And he claimed, he claimed he tracked down Frank Serro before Andrew Tullis and had interviewed him. So I was, he said he's going to write a book on this, how I, how I found Frank Serro. And I was anticipating, as, as were others, this is great, Paul Harrison, a well-known Nessie researcher, he's tracked down Frank Serrell. We're looking forward to what he has to say. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, Paul Harrison last year was exposed as a, a liar. Yep. Yeah, he, he also wrote true crime uh, books. And then we found out last year that Paul Harrison faked a lot of interviews with serial killers. Yep. And he's now in hiding. He's probably lying about Frank Searle too. Yeah, so the conclusion was, well, you claim to have also interviewed Frank Searle. But yep. we can't trust you. So anything, even if you did bring this book out, well, we, we, can't, we can't trust you. And the book never appeared. Paul Harrison's never reappeared. And basically that closes the curtain of Frank Searle. Yeah. Well, they had, there's, there's only a few more things we can do with this story. And that's to try and track down some of these girlfriends. 
There's one called Lieva Petan in Belgium. She's in, uh, ooh, what country? Belgium. Belgium, yes. So, I mean, people have contacted her, but she's, she's never came out with any confession that Frank Sell faked anything. Yeah. I mean, you, you wonder if they were, they were co-conspirators. There's no proof of that. Yeah. So one, one has to assume that they, these, these female helpers, you know, had no part in fake photographs. Uh, but surely, surely she must be able to corroborate something. But she, as far as I know, she never saw the monster with Frank Sell. So. Well, Frank claimed that on many of his sightings that somebody else was there, but nobody's ever been able to find any of these other people that he claimed were there when he had sightings or took his photographs. Yeah, yeah. we have no corroboration. Yeah. Lief Patan is not seeing anything. So the other big stinker we have to talk about is Tony Doc Shields. Tony. Yep. Yeah, okay. You know, some people believe those pictures are real because they subscribe to a paranormal supernatural explanation for Nessie. Yeah, well, Frank, uh, not Frank, but Tony Shields or Doc Shields, he's still around as far as I know, he must be in his 80s now, still living in Ireland. Uh, back in the 70s, uh, he, was more, he, he, turned, he was more famous for Morgawa, the Cornish sea serpent. Yeah. And he, uh, we know it was him that took uh, some pic famous pictures in 77, uh, allegedly attributed to a Mary F in a newspaper, but he, he took them and uh, he claimed to have taken others. If you look at his book, uh, the 1977, uh, the book called Mon Monstrum, he wrote a book called Monstrum. Mm -hmm. And he talks about his so-called uh, witchcraft and paranormal attempts to raise up monsters through psychic means. With naked yeah. witches, too. What's that? With naked witches. Yeah, some guys get all the luck. But uh, yeah. I've never felt the need to employ those means to in my monster hunting toolbox. But well, uh, He's got three Nessie pictures he's associated with. Yeah, so what happened was uh, after Morgawa, it was actually around the same time, he he got publicity for something called what the newspapers called Monster Mind. Yep. So so he got together, I think it was seven so-called psychics, and they spent a certain number of time concentrating very hard on making these monsters come to the surface. This is any monster in the world. So where... Uh, he claimed that, you know, that a sea serpent at San Francisco Bay, that he even claimed that uh, Champlain, Lake Champlain had made a, maybe, maybe, when, when was Sandra Mansi's picture? 1977. Yeah, he's taking the credit for that as well. So it was around 1977, this monster mine project, and he claimed they raised up Champ for Sandra Mansi, uh, Loch Mora, Loch Shield, Loch Ness and Morgawa. And it was during this so-called monster mind that he went up to Loch Ness 
and he claimed he took these two long neck pictures called the Loch Ness Muppet from the, the, the keep, the tower uh, Castle Orchid. Mm-hmm. Of course, this another sensation got published in the, the Daily Mirror, I think, just at a time where the, Queen, the Queen's uh, Silver Jubilee, 25 years uh, as, as monarch. So, Tim Dinsdale swore by them almost. Uh, Tony Shields swore on an affidavit that they were genuine. Uh, he said he took set off the negatives for analysis, but they mysteriously disappeared. So we don't have the negatives to look at. Uh, uh, there were prints made on the glass slide, and one of them got broke. Is this still? Well, well uh, after all this, I mean, people had their doubts. Tim Dinsdale, the, the, the Shields pictures were the cover for Tim Dinsdale's 1982 revision of his Loch Ness Monster book. Yep. So Tim Dinsdale was still using them five years later. Yeah. But what, 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 no, these, these pictures were accepted by genuine a lot of people until uh, Mike, Mike Kaminsky, uh, if a strange magazine was sent, was sent a cassette tape in which uh, we have Shields in conversation with a guy called uh, McCormick. And that, those uh, tapes, which we are, I imported recently, we have these two discussing how to fake monster pictures. Well, the transcript of that tape is available online. You can print yeah. up Shields' tape and read the transcripts from the original article. Yeah, so Strange Magazine exposed this in 1976. Yeah, around, around, around the time my Cedar was exposed of his Brontosaurus picture, and he was in conversation. So what it seemed what was happening was uh, Shields is in Ireland, and Michael McCormack was in San Francisco, I think, and these two were sending these taped conversations to each other. So basically, they would uh, send these tapes instead of written letters for some reason. Uh, it must have been Michael McCormick that sent the tapes to uh, Strange Magazine. So at the end of it, they basically admit to the Morgawa pictures being faked. Uh, Shields denies it. And you, you wonder why he'd record his own confession but still deny it. Yeah. Uh, well, there's but, a photograph from 1983 that looks exactly like the ones from 1977. So it's been assumed that that's him too. Yeah, that, that's an attempt to create corroborating evidence. And as you say, the thing looks exactly like exactly like the, his pictures from uh, six years before. Yeah. So I think anyone's been fooled by that. So but she was admitting there's a, there's a picture of a alleged couple of humps in Loch Shiel. Uh, Tony Shields uh, admits he faked that picture using plasticine models. And the, the reason he probably picked Loch Shield because that's his surname, you know, Tony Shields. Uh, well, my, my only, my, my take is uh, uh, the thing about 
uh, now what's his name? Michael McCormack, right? Yeah. Michael McCormack is a puppet master. Okay. They say it says Professor Michael McCormack was from the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, uh, and he arrived in Falmouth uh, in March '76 the aim of capturing the Falmouth sea serpent in, in the aid with Tony Shields. But the guy, the guy was a, we now know, makes puppets. You know, he, he, he's a, he, he ran, made puppets, they have appeared in TV shows. He probably made the models. Is what he, he made the models that Tony Shields used. I think the Shields, I think the Loch Ness pictures are, they're not and not overlays. I think they're actually uh, puppets. Models. Yeah, and they look like the Muppets, don't they? Like uh, the surgeon's hypothetical submarine. Yeah, I it's think photographed at an angle to make them look larger than they actually are. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was taken at Loch Ness. So uh, it was taken in some quiet little out uh, cove or shore shoreline uh, down in Ireland, you know. Yeah, so I think they're actually models put in the water. Yeah. Shot there. The one from 1983, you look at the wide-angle shot of it, and it looks small. So it's yeah, probably I, the same model that was used in 1977. Yeah, so I don't think, I don't think they're overlays, you know, acetate or anything like that. I think they're actually three-dimensional models that have been put in a shallow water. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's a clue, I think there's a clue... You know, we, we talked about Stephen Chalice saying this looks like a catfish, you know. Now, yeah. The thing is, uh, back in the late 70s, a Muppet, the Muppet show was pretty popular, wasn't it? Yes. And they have these kind of, these, these kind of large-mouthed puppets with yep. very, very large lip lines. That's, that's to aid the, the, hand, the hand movements behind, under the surface. But this... I think Sarah was leaving, not Sarah, Shields was leaving us a clue by making these, this monster look like a Muppet, you know? Yeah. It's a subliminal clue that this is a hoax. So what, what, what happened was, uh, he's, he's taking these pictures, he got his moment of fame, he, he published his book, and he, he, he's a showman, basically. That, that's how he made his trade, he was a showman. Yeah. So uh, he's, he's always been a, a self-confessed trickster, a magician. Well, it's really sad that um, that he had to fool Tim Dinsdale like that, you know? So what happened was, I was, I was writing my book on Photographs Lock Ness Monster, so I gave a chapter to uh, Doc Shields, but I wrote, I wrote to him. Uh, I got his address in the Republic of Ireland, He's living in a rural cottage. He's offline. It's not even on the internet. So I asked him for some words for the book, for my book. And just, just to, just to, I sent a wee bribe. I sent, I sent a copy of my Water Horses book because he was into folklore. So I got a letter, and his letter basically, I was hoping for a confession, you know. I, as we've, as we've probably deduced, none of these guys ever confess. So he basically told me in his letter, he said to me, way back in the last century, during the 70s, there was a working wizard, a professional entertainer, a shamanic showman, a trickster. I've never denied that. Around the time, 
the robot rides underwater photographs and something that Loch Ness had caused a flood of excitement in the media and a sea monster had been reported in Falmouth Bay, Cornwall. I decided to join in the fun and get some useful publicity by announcing my intention to conjure up some bizarre and aquatic beasties. Little did I know how much of a kerfuffle this would eventually cause. He goes on to say, my 1977 photographs of something in Loch Ness are genuine. I happen to be in the right place at the right time. Coincidence, perhaps. Suspicious, certainly. Such things should be treated with a healthy dose of doubt. Any fair-minded sceptic would allow happenstance. I must have experienced synchronicity on occasions. Monster hunting is a game of chance, which I retired from a long time ago. Frankly, at this stage of the game, I don't really care if most Nessie nerds regard my photographs as fake. And he concludes by saying these are still the best pictures of the beastie ever taken. So there's no confession there. Yeah, but there's a lot of there's a lot of red flags on the side of the road there. Yeah, he's seen a few things like uh, he says it's genuine, but does he mean it's a genuine puppet? Well, uh, it's a real photograph. I'll give him that. Yeah. He says he decided to join in the fun. He says that any, he says such things should be treated with a healthy dose of doubt. So, uh, I was actually hoping he sent me the puppet in the post. <laughs> Good luck with that one. But is this someone else? He's not going to confess. Once again, these guys don't want to own up. He'll probably go to his, he'll go to his grave. Probably in the same bank vault with the McCray films. Yeah. Or maybe this Michael McCormack. I think this Michael McCormack. I mean, I spoke to Michael McCormack for the for my book. Oh, really? I tried, I tried to get a confession out of him. Yeah. And he, he admitted that the sea serpent pictures were, were puppets. Yeah. But he wouldn't go as far to say that the Loch Ness ones were his work. Well, I still have a, a suspicion that some of his work was involved. You can look at you can look at the picture from 1983 and look at the ones from 1977, and sometimes you can't tell the difference. You know, they look like the yeah. same photographs. Yeah, the 1983 one it's kind of tilted, tilted the other way. Yeah, it's, it's, the neck the neck is quite actually. The neck is tilted at an angle about 30 degrees, which is quite unusual. Because uh, most Nessie sightings, you don't have a neck uh, protruded like that stationary. Yeah. So, but at the end of the day, we can't trust what he said. He confessed, he virtually confessed in those tapes. Yes, exactly. I mean, once, once those tapes were out in the open, you know, you can't trust, you can't trust the guy. Yeah. So, uh, I was just know Strange Strange Magazine. I've yeah. Got, I've got Strange Magazine, which had this expose, said they had more information on uh, on uh, Doc Seals, but it was never published. It was never published. All anybody has to do to find it is Google Shields tapes, and it'll take you right to it. It's posted online. The transcript. Yep. Well, yeah. those, tape, those tapes mainly focus on Falmouth and Morgawa. Yeah. yeah so, but Loch Ness does get a mention, so it's clear that he's, he's moving on to bigger things. 
the biggest monster of all. So, so what are your general thoughts on dealing with hoaxes in general? Yeah. Well, we want to take a, a more analytical approach. As I said, we're now in the era of Photoshop, uh, and we've got the tools, the software tools, to analyze photographs. And we, with the help of others, we can actually find the, the original images, such as the, the picture of the catfish. Uh, actually, that catfish image was, as it turned out, quite easy to find. So with a bit more application, we've got a lot of people interested in Nessie and other lake monsters, yeah. and everyone's got an internet connection, so if we could all pull our resources and do a better Google image search, and we could find, potentially find, the original Photoshop images. As I said, we need to use software more. Yeah. Uh, I think, but a lot of hoaxes tend not to be Photoshop. I'm, I'm talking about pictures that get into the mainstream media. So what we... Well, what we tend to find is more people like Ricky Phillips who are opportunistic. You know, they see yeah, something in the they see something in the water. Yeah, looks like Nessie. They take a picture. And we have a similar image. A guy named Stephen Collis. There's a video from a few years back of this thing. It actually looked like a shields thing, but I'll follow this as well. Bobbing up on the water, and it's just a piece of wood. Yeah, then that turned out to be a semi-submerged boat wreck. So, uh, well, you know, a, so many, so many uh, videos today that are trotted out are nothing but boat wakes and waves. Yes. Uh, well, the problem is, so far away, you can get away with it. Yeah. Uh, Close-up pictures are hard to come by because. Uh, you know, the odds of being 100 metres from the monster are, are, are very small. Yeah. Uh, I say, At this point in time, I think the only way we're going to ever have a breakthrough is we've got to find a piece of a body or a dead body or some physical evidence is the only way we're going to be able to break through. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, images don't cut it with scientists. Yeah. It'd have to be some really, really very good bit of video yeah. know, taken taken by a, a, a reputable person. If, for example, we know about Neil Gemmell and his DNA studies. Yeah. I mean, if a scientist like that had seen the monster while he was taking his water samples and taking a video, the people would say, yeah, well, that guy's reputable. He's not a Marmaduke Weatherill. He's not a Doc Shields, so what's he got to lose? He's got a lot to lose. So, yeah. or if Adrian Shine took a video of something unusual, we'd, we'd say, you know, that's probably genuine because this guy doesn't want to promote the monster as much as others. But if he thinks he's got something people should see, then it's probably genuine. He's, he's been genuine about it. Absolutely. So it's really down to the personality, the person taking the picture. Or you know, Stephen Chalice, we know he's a Photoshop expert, Red Flag. Doc yeah. Shields, the, the conversational tapes, Red Flag. Uh, Frank, Frank Serrell, you know, posts in the water, Red Flag. So, and you know, Brontosaurus postcards. Yeah. 
that was there's no way around that. Yeah, one one start was out in the open. Don't trust them. No matter what he published, it's not going to count for anything. Yeah. So, as I said, confession is good for the soul, but uh, none of these people are going to confess. So it's really down to researchers such as I, you and I, trying to find internal evidence for or against. Yep. And using every kind of software tool or whatever at our disposal. Absolutely. But just we've got given we'll need, the, just uh, given need just given need yet reactions isn't good enough. You need some objective analysis. Yeah. And we can't we can't worry about people laughing at us while we're trying to, to do this work. Well yeah. It's either it's either put up with the ridicule or just quit. You know? That's the only choice we have. Well, it's a bit. It's a bit like you've got a machine, right, which detects true or false photographs. You have a wee dial, which you set your tolerance level. Your, your kind of the BS on it, you know. Yeah. And, uh, how you set that? If you set it too low, you set you accept every photograph and you're gullible. If you set it too high, you you reject every photograph and you're just a skeptic. Yeah. If we do, if we put our set our credibility set in someone that fine-tune it for somewhere in the middle, then, then we can get somewhere. But we get too many people today who have set the dial too far to the right and they reject everything. Yeah. And then and there's so certain believers that are gullible that, that want to believe so bad, they'll believe something like the chalice photo. Or the yeah. photo. That's they, where the dial is set to the other side. They don't care if it's exposed as a hoax. They go on believing anyway. You know, so you got to walk this middle road, you know? Yeah, so we've got to avoid setting the dial too much to the other side, but unfortunately, that's, that's uh, more than art than the science. Yeah. And, you know, we, we have to accept that we'll get it wrong sometimes, but we don't have big egos, do we? We, we say, okay, I'll take it on the chin. There's yep. people out there, they got big egos, and they never want to get an egg in their face. Yep. Exactly, yep. As a consequence, they're going to get nowhere. That's just part of the territory. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've had a great conversation. Thank you for coming on the show again. And uh, sure thing. It's a pleasure. Glad to be with you again. All right, you have a good day. Okay, let me know when you publish. Yep, I'll send you a link. Hopefully, I get a bit of discussion on it. Okay, thanks, Scott. Yep, thank you. Bye-bye. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. <laughs>